Hey guys, hey brothers and sisters, welcome back to Esoteric Side, the podcast and website institution in general, where we strengthen and increase the consciousness of our community through sharing a dialogue of esoteric wisdom, psychology, and spirituality in a practical way so you can apply it in your day-to-day life in this moment. Uh, I am Dr. Alex Saldana. I am a medical doctor, uh, Ayurvedic practitioner, and we have with ourselves here um, Miss Maddie. Maddie, tell us a bit about yourself and tell us about this awesome topic we have in store today. Hey, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you all. Um, my name is Maddie Elizabeth. I am a philosopher and a spiritual life coach, and I am happy to bring today the topic of social engineering and mass manipulation by means of the media. So we're going to be talking about the range of ways in which this deception occurs to manipulate individuals, manage social change, and regulate the future development and behavior of a society. That was very eloquently explained. You're making me look bad, but I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we should start with a little bit kind of of, um, psychology of kind of the history or the psychological history of this leading up to Noam Chomsky and basically how he summed everything up and how he explains everything in such a beautiful way. Um, Should we begin kind of with Gustave Le Bon and uh, his early work? Because when he came around in the kind of uh, late 1800s, even though he, when he wrote his his book, which actually was uh, the crowd, a study of uh, the popular mind in 1895, he was actually quite old, when he, when he wrote this book, because I think he lived to be like 90 years old, who's uh, quite uh, long lived for, for his time frame, right? He's actually known as, as a father of crowd psychology. Um, so he comes up with some very basic or interesting concepts. He, he was around in a time where crowds were, were psychology and, and general like um, thought was based around kind of hypnotism. Uh, like they were the eloquent, intelligent people. They were obsessed with uh, psychology, specifically psychology of crowds, and like, uh, like sort of this whole like mesmer and hypnotism things. Uh, so he came up with some basic concepts, which were basically the crowds rather than individuals, maybe induced to run the risk of death to secure a triumph for glory and honor. So this was about inspiring people. Uh, he was uh, like actually obsessed with how great things can be done in war with like military people um, in order, like someone could actually sacrifice themselves in a a glorious and an honorful manner uh, for a crowd, right? He found this to be incredible how someone can sacrifice their own life. Um, So when he he also uh, came up with, I'm going to not quote him contextually, trying to sum up a lot of his ideas, right? So, he also came up with the concept of when an individual is in a crowd, he becomes a machine, right? In a crowd, every sentiment and act is contagious and the individual becomes a spawn ready to sacrifice his own interest for that of a crowd, pawn, sorry. So have, have you found this to be true? Like everything I, I've mentioned, uh, is this, have you observed this in crowd psychology? I believe that I have observed this, especially after taking a deeper um, look into Laban's philosophy of crowds. 
Um, and I think also not only does an individual become a machine and becomes willing to sacrifice his or own purpose or meaning or value that he, as he might ascribe to his own life and gives that up to the community or the crowd. And that sense of individuality and authenticity is lost to the crowd because there's such a deep devotion and commitment to the ideas that are brought about to this crowd, you know, by the people that you mentioned, like the, the elites or whoever's bringing these ideas to the crowd, they just succumb to the ideas without even questioning them really. And so they really, really lose their, their sense of self through this. Yeah, I can definitely see this, uh, well, this obviously is human tendency, so it's not limited to a certain time frame. But this book was written over 100 years ago, like 130 years ago, I think. So um, it's interesting how I can see this in political movements today, in ideologies, right? How people identify with crowds. Well, he also kind of explaining or, or uh, summing up his, uh, his theory, he also makes a couple of uh, very interesting remarks as a crowd can only understand simple ideas. An original great idea must be simplified to become popular, thereby losing a great deal of what made it good in the first place. And the person who actually presents the idea to the crowd, someone who should be a more advanced thinker in order to actually simplify this idea, right? Should be the leader and the leader must arise to simplify these ideas, but his true intentions are unknown. And these ideas have a tendency to be taken as divine and therefore greatly misunderstood. He, he, this was before atheism was like so big in our society, right? He says, even atheism would exhibit all the intolerant ardor of religious sentiments. And that's true. Like nowadays you see these prevalent atheists who uh, argue with like this religious ardor and um, kind of totalitarianism or they just believe that they're, that, that is the truth, right? And the, their religion becomes atheism in some way, you know? Uh, and though, so, though crowds are capable of good and evil uh, acts, since it is our primitive instincts which drive us to join crowds, and the crowd provides a safe space for us to con uh, free of consequence to gratify these instincts. So this is essentially him uh, saying why crowds can actually turn evil in a certain way or uh, more so, even though they have like these grandiosious, like brave acts, th this capability of sacrificing themselves for the greater good, uh, they also have this other dark side to them where we can take, where we can kind of bring out our primal instincts, right? And, and this makes sense. I don't know uh, how, what you think about this, but uh, like the reason why we're attracted to doing groups is because it made our survival easier. Uh, so obviously, social acceptance is something that's going to be incredibly, incredibly uh, prevalent in, in our society because we have this ancient part of the brain that says, yeah, if you're in a group, it's more likely that you're going to survive. And it is true, right? Uh, what, what do you think about this? Yes, no, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you're saying here. And it's also, I think it's important to remark that as well as ameliorating that like, sense of acceptance that we will automatically receive being a part of a community and um, a group. It also relieves us of this sense, getting a little existential here, but it relieves us of this sense of like having to take responsibility 
for our own lives. And like, it relieves us of that burden because sometimes it can be a burden, like freedom is a burden. Individuality can be burdensome in the sense that we have to like define our lives and define meaning. But when we enter into a group, it's like, there is that automatic sense of like, okay, there's meaning here. We all have this unified sense of values and we're, you know, we're all here um, working towards something together. Yeah, then that's actually what you mentioned is actually another concept of, that is level in head, right? It, it, it is true. I think we've all felt it, like you said, this this feeling of being responsible for our own life and how it can be overwhelmed, right? Maybe you didn't have the best father figure, right? And, and even if you did, uh, or mother figure, whoever was your figure of kind of taught you how to handle life, right? Uh, Maybe if you, even if you had this awesome father figure, maybe they didn't teach you exactly how you should do that yourself or didn't, you didn't have enough confidence if maybe it's your first time actually having success or actually, you know, being a strong person. It, it's, it's incredibly like um, the, the first time you, you try, you take these huge risks. Uh, it, it, it is daunting, right? Uh, and I think this is actually a direct quote. The tyranny exercised unconsciously on men's minds is the only real tyranny because it cannot be fought against. So he, he's actually uh, mentioning how this can so easily get out of control, get out of hand and be used to manipulate people. And he has probably observed this happening, right? But it, it's not really until a little bit later on, which we're gonna talk about where this becomes kind of a science of manipulation. Um, Who's our, our next kind of author uh, here of, of great weight in this whole uh, topic of group psychology? Are we going to go into Noam Chomsky? Uh, I think Freud might be better. I don't know. Okay, Freud, yeah. You know. Freud sounds great. I think Freud, uh, he wrote a book in 1921 called The Psychology, Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Evil, right? Uh, so he took actually ideas of Laban and other previous authors and he built, he said, he criticized them. He said, okay, they're, they're correct here, but maybe, uh, but I have some other ideas about this, right? So uh, he took a lot of the thought that he, that he and his uh, contemporaries, right? Um, all the psychoanalysts had, and he developed kind of this group psychology theory, right? Uh, which introduces certain concepts such as you know, the suggestibility of groups. Uh, so what Laban was saying here, where we have to simplify an idea in order for a group to understand it, uh, because a group isn't intelligent, basically, what, which was what Laban was saying. Uh, he phrases it that they're suggestible, right? Uh, something be becomes easier to believe in within a group. So once an individual becomes part of a group, uh, there's certain uh, critical faculty, uh, which is kind of lost here, right? So it's the same um, line of, of Lebon's thinking, but he just gives it a specific name. He also uh, comes up with this concept of uh, contagion, which is a rapid spread of ideas, emotions, and attitudes across groups. So in this, he come and comes up with this idea of like a virus spreading through society, like an idea is a virus, which is uh, very rapidly spreading. Uh, and it's not just an idea, like it can be an, an, a sentiment, an emotion, an attitude, right? Uh, how have you observed this in just in general modern day? 
the fact of, of ideas spreading like viruses and attitudes spreading like viruses throughout a, a social group. Have you seen this in, in your in your day to day? I would definitely say so. And I think it's so easy for these things to spread once, like, like uh, Laban mentioned before, that the, this is a type of tyranny that's kind of exercised on, the men's, on man's mind. And it's so easy to spread because, like he mentioned, it's unconscious. Most of these ideas that we accept are ingrained into us through socialization. And it's, you know, like we believe them and when it's unconscious, we're, we're not even aware that we believe them. So it can be very dangerous, I think, to absorb all these ideas and beliefs that are spread throughout a group, um, you know? I think you were muted. You are correct. <laughs> and he actually mentions how there's a higher rate of uh, variability and morality. Uh, so extreme acts of good and extreme acts of apparent evil are more common, right? So acts of selfishness and evil can be merged into group. And he says this is because there's this concept called kind of a, a primal horde in which there is an association within a group such as a brotherhood, right? So um, this concept of a primal horde is very interesting, right? So the first variability is because the conscious mind kind of gets shut off, right? So it's very easy for kind of the snowball effect to happen. So uh, this negative sentiment or this positive sentiment, which can lead to bravery or the negative sentiment, which can lead to like violent, horrible, kind of primitive animalistic acts, right? Um, kind of will build up very quickly since this kind of cognitive ability is diminished in a group. It's so easy to get caught up in, in this like a snowball effect of rapid ramping up of emotions, right? Um, the primal horde more so says kind of because there's this concept of family, which is so ingrained in our psyche, since it, probably because it was very instilled in us when we were very young. So the, like the concept of, you know, equal status, like brothers and sisters, and we can see this um, in like religious institutions where we say, hey, brother, hey, sister. Uh, or, and there is, they even mentioned sometimes the preacher, they call his father, right? Uh, so there's, certain archetypical roles of A, the father figure, which is the leader of the group or whoever has the group's attention, who was leading the group temporarily, uh, and everyone else, which is equal, right? So this is very interesting because the father figure has, is more morally flexible. He has less restrictions put on him. So he, there's, he's like held up to a different ideal than the rest, right? He has the ability to do different things than the rest of uh, people do. Uh, this is actually common, uh, that a politician or that some leader will not kind of be held responsible for his actions, right? Or will be held to different standards, uh, which is changing a bit now, but obviously throughout time, it's, it's a very prevalent idea. And even now, I think it's still a very pre uh, prevalent idea. Uh, it's, I think there, there's this, recently there's been kind of this stigmatization of leaders who abuse their powers, which is, I think it's good because they're held to the same standards, right? But this, I think it's been, you know, excessive because I mean, not all people get put up to the same level, right? So sometimes they have even higher standards for, for leaders and, and they're humans too. Um, how, how do you, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, I think that like all of these authority figures, people that we perceive that hold like all the power, 
it's so dangerous to just like put them on a pedestal and hold them to such high standards because then it's like these people um, are so it's it's so easy for us to allow them to influence us and like kind of just take in whatever they say like whatever they say is law basically and that's that can be um, dangerous to society and also to an individual yeah definitely so they also have this concept of you know this, this father figure or this leader being kind of the great equalizer, right? Because let's say you know we're listening to someone give a great speech, we're all the same compared to them, right? So there is kind of this uh, justice happening or kind of social equality happening when we're all the same compared to this one dude because he's got all of our attention, right? He so we're all the same to him, and and that is there is kind of an, a poetic wisdom of, of like the only. I think true uh, equality that's possible is kind of that temporary group equality, uh, but it's it's not complete because obviously there's just one guy that's held to different standards and leads us, right? Yeah, I, I would I say I would say it's definitely like an illusion of equality almost. Yeah, and I think the last concept that Freud uh, introduces as sexually very intelli- incredibly interesting and relevant is this thing, uh, concept of an epic poet. So there's someone that comes in and tells us a story, right? And inspires us, and this poses a danger to a leader because they inspire us to imagine ways to try and become a leader, right? So they put us in this kind of hero role where we uh, feel like we can rise up. And obviously, I mean, we could, this inspiration can lead up to us become a leader, which will definitely uh, put the leader's role in, uh, in danger, right? Uh, who, who do we have next as far as like you know, kind of the great thinkers of, of group psychology before we, we go into Noam Chomsky and how he explains everything and kind of will help us understand a, a bit more. I think it's, uh, Le, we had LeBon, then we went into Freud, and I think we can go into Freud's nephew, right? Edward Bernays, beautiful. So Edward Bernays was this pioneering mind, right? He was a, a proper modern, he came kind of with a, well, two books that were really interesting. I think Crystallizing Public Opinion or, or Crystallizing Public, the Public Opinion in 1923 and Propaganda in 1928. So he was a pioneering mind in advertising modern propaganda and public relations. He actually came up with a field of public relations. So he was an interesting guy because he did a lot of good, I guess, but a lot of bad as well. He was basically the guy that got women to smoke selling cigarettes because uh, like a long time ago, like, you know, like smoking was considered to be a masculine thing. Most women did not smoke, right? So he, he was actually like sold the idea of uh, cigarettes being empowering to women and like, a feminist ideal. So, I mean, <laughs> he was, I, I, I don't know, uh, it, it, it's a very controversial, uh, if, you took, if you speak about it, you know, kind of in uh, moral terms, uh, but, um, oh no, he basically developed techniques to control manipulative masses, right? Uh, he was uh, Freud's nephew, and he did build off a lot of ideas that Freud had uh, with respect to group psychology. Let's see. 
the individual so some of the concepts that he had very quickly was the individual senses the power of groups and derives feelings of potential uh power in, in identification with them, right so here we can all see how when we go to a stadium when we become part of a crowd how that there's something in that kind of hypnotic mass uh there's there's a mastermind which is formed, right? And I think several authors have kind of mentioned this masterminds when there's a group of people that have kind of united for the same ideal. There's this download can you that you get from it, right? So here he he talks a little bit about this, saying that when you kind of form part of this group mastermind, there's this power with it, right? Now this isn't a very intelligent mastermind. He's just talking about this very primal instinct. I don't, have you ever been to to kind of a sports events and kind of cheered on and got intoxicated by that whole crowd thing? Yes, although I feel as though for me uh, a more potent example would be like going to a concert, like being a part of this huge audience that just gets so lost and like you said, hypnotized and entranced. You know, it's it's it is very powerful. Yeah, that that's actually a pretty good idea. Uh, pretty. A good explanation of it, right? Yeah, we get so entranced, we get, and there's power in being part of the crowd because it's obviously incredibly difficult for an individual to change the world. And an individual cannot change the world if he doesn't get people behind his idea, right? Whether consciously or subconsciously. So, this, like you said, this whole concept, uh, which we talked about earlier, and you mentioned that uh, an individual feels a huge burden of the world on his shoulders. But when he's, a, when he's in a part of a crowd, this burden is diluted. So he feels much more powerful and capable because he's got like backup in some sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's just like this huge sense of comfort because you know, deep down that you're not alone in the sense that, you know, you are an individual and you do have these responsibilities. But when you're part of this huge group where everyone else kind of has the same exact situation going on within there is this sense of relief and comfortability because you know you're not the only one experiencing these existential life <laughs> questions and all these reflections and whatnot. Yeah, and so this is going to take a, a dark turn. Even <laughs> this is <a> direct <laughs> quote from <laughs> from uh, Bernays. Right, he says, "If we understand the mechanisms and motives of the group's mind." It is, not, it is now possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing it. So he phrases this as a question, like, is it now possible to control people if we understand how it is without them being aware that we're actually doing it? And this is kind of Machiavellian and macabre. I mean, it's, it's, it's dark, right? Because now you're taking this whole psychology to the next level and you're using it to manipulate people, right? I think there's actually a book like called Dark Psychology, which speaks a little bit about this, right? Uh, and, and it is dark. I, I don't know. <laughs> what, what's your opinion on this? I think it is very dark, especially as someone who is aware of the ongoings of this manipulation. Like to just be, you know, aware that this is happening to so many people that don't know about it. I feel like that's dark and it's even darker when you have the information and you have the knowledge and you want to diffuse it, but these people are so closed off because they've been so deeply conditioned and 
um, and manipulated to believe that, you know, they don't have the control. They don't have power over their own lives. They relegate yeah. the power to these higher, higher, I put that in air quotes, um, forces. Yeah, and, and Jordan Peterson think, was talking about this. Um, and I think one of his videos where he mentioned how we associate, you know, great people to be in positions of power, right? Like if you're a great person, you deserve to be in a position of power. However, like we have grown to associate just the fact that you're in a position of power. Like, oh yeah, if he's in a position of power, he must be a great person. And that's not true. There's so many people that are in positions of power that are really not great people. And we, we have grown kind of to adore the whole concept of power by itself. And I think this is why kind of power can corrupt because people don't strive really to become great people in order to have power. They just kind of want power. And I think this comes from a big shift. I think, you know, you and I have talked about this, like that a long time ago when we lived in tribes and we lived in small towns, like you knew everyone in that town, your entire tribe, like they knew you from the time you were born to the time you died. So there was no faking who you were. Everyone knew who you were. Uh, so it, the culture was really about being someone. Like you had to become the person you wanted to become in order to get that credit. But when we moved into big cities, when, more so with mass communication, like you now have just a couple minutes to get your concept of who you are through to a person. So the skill of pretending to be something or showing that you're something became way more valuable than actually being someone or yield better, yield better results, right? So this was kind of the virus was like the worst poison to humanity because now we're not really focused on being and changing, more so on exposing this part of ourselves that we want people to know. So know. much yes, so much yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bring all the truth to the light. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's toxic, but it, it's where we're at. And I think we got to acknowledge where we're at in order to change. Uh, yes. And I honestly think that this is such a great segue into Noam Chomsky. If you would like to go there, um, I know he created, well, he came up. Would you like to give a brief overview of the history or just like, who he is and how he derived the 10 manip the 10 media manipulation strategies that we're going to cover. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, but I think right now it, the, the last uh, topic that I want to cover uh, of, a, of uh, this one, dude, sorry, I forgot his name. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't good stuff. Lebon. It was. Oh, my notes. Oh, yeah, Bernays, sorry. Edward Bernays. He was a very famous dude. I forgot his, uh, his name. But he said that the crowd does not mean merely a physical aggregation of a number of people. The crowd is a state of mind. So as long as one identifies with the group, their mind will behave with uh, or will be affected by that group even when no member of the group is present. So this is incredible now because now we don't even need the group to be there. It's just our identity with that group that needs to be present in order for our behavior to be affected, right? And so there exists suppressed and therefore subconscious desires of the individual in the individual because they don't fit into his or her self-image. And this is very kind of psychoanalyst, right? So we have a self-image and 
we identify ourselves in a certain way. So when there's something that doesn't fit into that self-image, right? Something may be desired and, and, um, and we might want desperately that desire, but since we can't, there's like a shadow Like we talked about the shadow last time, right? So here he's taking that concept of shadow of everything we don't want to admit about ourselves, we don't want to accept about ourselves. And he's using that to manipulate people. So for example, let's say uh, someone represses that anger. So we're taught, you know, because anger is uncomfortable to people because, well, we can get angry and we can be kind of hostile towards them, right? So when uh, this anger gets repressed in order to kind of be able to interact in society, well, now there's anger and rage that you can call up on that masses and manipulate them with it. So anyone who's come expressed this and like sexual frustration, anything that, that's repressed, uh, and I think Edward Bernays uh, mentions, for example, this whole concept of symbols, right? Um, so the symbol is created. So a car, you know, I want to buy a BMW. Oh yeah, what, why do you want to buy a BMW? Well, because it's, you know, a car I need to transport, yeah. But, and it's comfortable, you know, that's not really why you want. Most of the time, people that buy these nice fancy cars, it's a status symbol or it's a means to satisfy their wife or blah, 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 blah. Like something it, that BMW doesn't really represent just transportation, it represents something else. And so maybe the status symbol, which gives you power, maybe it's literally power for you, right? But since you don't identify yourself as this kind of power hungry, uh, kind of oppressive dude, uh, you will buy the BMW and that's your subconscious desire being filled by the symbol, right? So he comes up with a concept of selling symbols to people, which is great as far as uh, selling things to people goes, but horrible for what that actually does to a person as far as making them manipulable. Because this renders human beings manipulable when you're able to, when they adopt belief and behaviors without them being aware of the driving motivation, right? So if we're able to actually go deep and introspect, we're able to understand kind of why we want something, right? So why do I want this so badly? Well, it's just a car. Okay, well, maybe it's more than a car to me, right? But when you're part of a group, you know, th this comes out the window and this is a successful propagandist must understand the true motives and not the content to accept the reasons by which a man will give for what they do so basically people will say they're doing some stuff for a certain reason and if you're wise you will understand that's not most of the time that's not the reason why they're doing it there's underlying subconscious kind of shadow reasons why they're doing it and they don't even know that, that that's true about them right they don't even take the time to analyze that or they don't want to accept it i don't know what's been your your thoughts on this Yes. And even, even like just relating it back to the group, it's like on, on our own, we don't want to accept certain things about ourselves. We don't want to come to understand the true reasons as to why we want something or why we do a certain thing. But I feel like in a group setting, in a community setting, it becomes more acceptable. And we can even channel those reasons into something like, like some huge group event. I'm trying to think like maybe war, like, starting a war like we channel that we can channel all that anger into war and so in a group like that becomes justifiable in a way if that makes any sense yeah because it's like clan conflict right he says each group considers its own standards ultimate and indisputable and tends to dismiss all contrary and different standards 
as indefensible. So this is where all this fragmentation of being identified with a group will lead to a conflict. Because like at you know in ancient times, this primitive part of our brain was our clan against this other clan. So our beliefs, our standards against their beliefs and their standards, and we're willing to die for it because this is all I know. These people, these people, and my identity with them is all I know. And as this now changes, like it's, and we're in con constant like mix, intermixing and mingling with other groups with other identities. This is why this increases the likeliness for a violent conflict or clash. And, and why like this debate, this openness uh, of trying to get to a bigger truth will be kind of chopped out of the consciousness of people because it, it becomes like a warlike effort. And we can even see this like in sporting events when there's one tribe or team against another tribe or team and they're fighting and it's a winner take off situation and this primitive instinct of when we used to go to war and everything, you know, people have heart attacks after their team loses a championship. Why? It doesn't make sense. But when we actually, it, in our mind, it's actually a territorial loss. You know, if your tribe lost, well, it kind of means you lost all everything you had, and maybe you know, you, you know, your your family was going to get raped, and you might have get killed. So obviously, there's this fervor that goes along with that's attached to this sporting event because it activates ancient parts of our brain. What are your thoughts? Totally, totally, totally. Oh, getting so passionate about this. I love it. <laughs> so, so now I think is a good trans, uh, trans uh, of going to Noam Chomsky. We can uh, kind of transpose to him. Awesome. Uh, who, who was Noam Chomsky? Like, who, who? So Noam Chomsky was a distinguished American philosopher. He was also a political activist and a professor of linguistics at MIT. And for over 50 years, Noam has been exposing the crimes of the United States military across the world. And he has actually devised um, the most common strategies for understanding the psychological tools in which, you know, the media can manipulate the masses. And so he devised these, or he came up with these or discovered these 10 strategies um, so that we can have a deeper understanding of like how we're being controlled and why and, you know, just like the, the inner workings of this manipulation. So, um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so let's start with the first strategy because definitely he, he was actually, he actually worked for the U.S. government, but he, he mentioned that uh, everything he did, like he was just being funded by them. But because the U.S. government was kind of throwing money and advancing technology and theories and just funding a whole bunch of projects, and he didn't really—they didn't really care. It's you know they're just funneling taxpayer money into advancing knowledge and technology. Uh, MIT, you know, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So he, but he dedicated a large part of his time into like actually undercoving, like with I think I forget the number of years that something becomes declassified. They're just like an, uh, so he studied like all these classified U.S. documents, and and he was just incredible at he can watch a news segment and, and understand what's the truth behind what the news is trying to feed you, right? Uh, so let's go over these ten strategies, Miss Maddie. What's the first strategy? Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so strategy number one is the strategy of distraction. So within this strategy. 
the goal and objective is to divert public attention away from important issues and changes that are determined by the elites, like political and economic elites. Um, and the technique that's really used behind this is just continuously flooding us with distractions and insignificant information. So this strategy is very essential to prevent the public from gaining interest in the transformative knowledge in the areas of like science, economics, psychology, neurobiology, and cy cybernetics um, that, that the government and that the elites have access to. Um, but they want us, the goal is to maintain public attention and divert it away from what the real social problems are. So they really just want to keep us busy. And by keeping us busy with our on with like, you know, the daily like workings of our lives, we don't really have any time to think about these greater issues that are at hand. Yeah, and Sanon Chomsky was great at actually understanding uh, how this is done, like how they can apply this, because uh, of course, you know, the this was kind of known for thousands of years by leaders that want to kind of control masses because they understand that you know, the the entire group is more powerful than they can ever be, right? So like there's a scene from Django Unchained. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie uh, where Leonardo DiCaprio says, you know, there's all these slaves in the plantations. What actually keeps them from killing and overtaking us? And uh, he goes into like uh, this explanation of how there's different levels of mind, but that's not true. What's actually true is you know, you can get someone, if once someone's identified with the group and believes whatever you feed that group, I mean, they're not going to question it. And it, it is group psychology. And it's this group manipulation to its highest extent, you know, because it is true, you know, if they banded together, it, I mean, they, they could have killed and overthrown them, but they were just so overcome by fear. And uh, these, yeah. So yeah, definitely. Th th I think that's a very important one. And that's a strategy. And, you know, it's no secret. I'll know that this is what they're doing. And an individual, once he's taken by himself, is much more intelligent than a group like, like you know, they've mentioned here. Um, but that goes out the window. So what's the second strategy that, that Noam Chomsky mentioned? The second strategy is creating problems and then offering solutions to instill this sense of trust in the system, right? So the, the, the system is going to create a problem to cause some type of reaction in the audience. And this is going to become the norm of the measures that we would accept. So for example, like, you know, they would say, oh, let's create an economic crisis in order for the public to accept this as a necessary evil to solve some other problem that they created. So it's kind of like this just vicious cycle that's going on of like creating problems you know, so they're creating the problems and they're offering the solutions. And this is something that I think, this is a link that people miss. Like people only see the solution offering side of things and they don't see the problems that are created. They don't know that the problems are created by the people that are offering solutions. Yeah, this is actually really important. Like it's obvious that those running uh, governments and those running like uh, are aware of this, right? I mean, most of the people that are in the higher ups are not stupid people by any means, right? So obviously they can predict like uh, what's going to be happening. And if they can control 
what's going to be happening. It's obviously going to be much less of an effort and much less of a gamble to, to figure out what problem to solve if they're creating it, right? Um, yeah, the problem reaction solution, and this it's just a way to control this, right? So it, I mean, I think this is very important. These are not stupid people. And I think under, underestimating those in power is like just one of the greatest downfalls of a massive, you know, underestimating your enemy in general. So what's the third strategy? Okay, so here we have the strategy of gradualism, which is also known as the gradual strategy. And the, the strategy is pretty, it pretty much lies in the name. So here we are making an unacceptable measure acceptable. And the way we do this is by gradually applying enough pressure for maybe let's say a few consecutive years. Um, and this is done in such a way that any new form of like radical social, socioeconomic conditions, any, any mal conditions. So like neoliberalism and how that was imposed in the 1980s and 1990s. We have the minimal state, we have privatization, mass unemployment, wages that do not secure decent income. All of these unacceptable measures are made acceptable because of the way that they are gradually fed to us spoonful by spoonful, a little bit over time. Um, so these changes, these radical changes that would have given a rise to revolution if they had been applied all at once are now not, not causing any reason for people to get upset or revolt against these changes. Yeah, uh, there, there's, two, uh, uh, there's two analogies that I like to come here. Uh, you're from Florida, right? So uh, you've obviously you know, cooked crabs or, or lobsters at some point in your life, right? Uh, well, the reason that crabs don't realize like, that they're being boiled alive is you have to turn up the heat just a little bit so it, it gets hotter, it's gradually, gradually, and they don't notice the change until it's too late. Uh, another analogy is kind of, uh, is by Moshe Feldenkrais, right? Moshe Feldenkrais speaks about, you know, if you're lifting uh, a 200 pound weight and someone adds a feather to it, you're not gonna notice the feather, right? But if you just have your hand there and a feather falls on you, well, you're obviously gonna notice the change in pressure, right? So yeah, this is just a natural tendency and you can, you can don't even need to apply with groups. You can apply to your spouse, right? <laughs> you can apply with everything. Just a gradual change over time, this <laughs> positive or negative manipulation. Yeah, it can be done. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love those analogies. Such good illustrations. But um, yeah, so then the fourth strategy is the strategy of deferring. So it's just another way to accept an unpopular decision. And this is to present it as necessary, painful and necessary in order to win over public acceptance at that time. So for the public, for the masses, it's way easier for us to accept a future sacrifice as opposed to an immediate sacrifice. And the public, the masses, we always have the tendency to accept naively that everything will improve tomorrow, especially because that's what we're being told. Like, oh, things are just gonna get better. You know, things are always gonna improve over time. And by kind of absorbing this, that statement, the sacrifice that we're bound to face, we believe that it could be avoided. And this just buys us more and more time to get used to the idea of change. So once the time comes, 
where people realize like, okay, things just aren't going to change. We've already accepted. We've already come to accept it. So I think this is taking advantage of the natural kind of survival instinct of people to be disciplined in tough times. And it says, well, yeah, you, you need to be disciplined right now because it's going to get better. And you need, you, but right now you need to survive. But that it's going to get better, it's going to get better. You know, we saw it in the Soviet Union. You know, it, it, it doesn't come. They take their sweet, sweet time. And it, it's, in the meantime, they just take more and more, more rights away from it. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's horrible and, and it's manipulative. And I think what would be our, um, the next strategy, Ms. Maddie? So the next strategy, number five, is addressing the public the same way you would address a little child, which is so demeaning, in my opinion. Um, But, you know, you see lots of advertisements and ads that are targeted towards the general public, and they use discourse and arguments and rhetoric with especially childish intonation. So this, this is targeting the fragility like of our egos as if the viewer like us, the audience were some creature of a very young age or even if we were like mentally impaired. So the more you try to fool the viewer, the more childish the adopted tone. So if we're like receiving this tonality of information over time, you know, we're just gonna start to accept it. Why? Because if someone talks to a person as if she had the age of 12 years or less, then due to the suggestive quality of that statement, the other person is going to tend to respond or react without much thought or resistance, just like a 12 year old would. Yes, definitely. Uh, This is actually called the Pygmalion effect, right? And the Pygmalion effect speaks uh, a great deal about this, uh, which is basically people react how you treat them, right? So uh, if you treat someone, you know, if you're your spouse, if you treat, if you're kind of jealous and you treat them like they're cheating on you, well, maybe sooner or later, they're probably gonna cheat on you because that's how you treat them, right? But this is, if you treat someone like they're stupid, they're gonna behave that way, right? And specifically in groups, since that there's not that conscious filter put on them. So yeah, uh, what's the next one? Wrapping kind of this. Yes, yes. Number six is appeal to emotions rather than reason. This one is huge, honestly. This is a classical technique. Um, and it just causes like a short circuit on any rational analysis, any critical, any logical sense of the individual. So we're losing our logical capacity to reason with ourselves. Um, yeah, so we're not really able to utilize these, these um, parts of ourselves um, when, we are, when our emotions are targeted. So when, when our emotions, when people appeal to emotions, that also opens the door to the unconscious. And so it makes it a lot easier to implant certain ideas, desires, fears, and doubts and compulsions within us. And all of that just causes us to behave in certain ways that they want us to behave in, you know, so that we can succumb to their control. And this is so easily done when emotions are appealed to. We all know that like, you know, when you're in an emotional state, it's difficult to perceive accurately, you know? Definitely, yeah. Uh, it's more, it's much easier to be impulsive, to be, uh, yeah, for the conscious, logical mind to go out the window. Definitely when emotions are involved. So, you know, that's been a strategy of propagandists for, for a while now. Um, what's the next one? 
So seven and eight kind of go hand in hand. So I will just marry those two and present them together. So number seven is you keep the strategy is keep the public in ignorance and mediocrity. So their, tar their goal, their aim is to make absolutely sure that the public is incapable of understanding the, the advanced technologies and methods that they use to control and enslave us. Um, and I'm gonna quote Noam Chomsky himself here. Uh, he says, the quality of education given to lower social classes should be as poor and mediocre as possible so that the gap of ignorance remains very large and that the lower class, it's impossible for them to achieve the knowledge base that those of the elites and the upper class would have. This keeps us in a perpetual state of ignorance and mediocrity. And then number eight is encouraging the public to be complacent with this medio mediocrity, to be comfortable with their ignorance. You know, ignorant, ignorance is bliss. So another facet of this technique is just making the public believe that being stupid or vulgar and uneducated is fashionable. While at the same time, suffocating like the culture and the science and the art that do that that does not conform to the norm because these types of sciences some some of these art forms and these advanced cultures expand the mind outside the realm of the norm and they don't want us tapping into that so they're encouraging us to be complacent and you know marry our comfort zone basically so that we don't question anything yeah, I think that's that's so um, clear to see in you know sitcoms and and uh, reality shows how becoming stupid has become fashionable, right? Uh, not thinking it's just you know be a caveman or a cave woman, that's no problem, right? Why why would you need to see things in a more complex manner? And definitely the social the you know the public school system is really not the best in the world, right? Uh, unless like you know you go into honors programs, um, there's like the basic quality of education, most in almost any country is, you know, specifically larger countries, is very subpar. This whole thing of rational critical thought is, is not something that it's given much focus. Uh, more so in, in memorizing stuff and processes, and it's it's not a very, and, and they segmentize things, right? So uh, I had a professor that, well, when I taught, because I taught everything from middle high school and, and university, right? So. I had a professor that says, uh, how does the government keep people stupid? Well, they compartmentalize everything. So it's math, it's just about math. You know, history is just about history. Uh, physics is just about physics. And they don't teach you how to connect the dots and apply everything in, in context to be able to use your rational thought. And I think there is a large truth to that. Uh, so uh, any comments or would you like to move on to, to the next? Yeah, um, just a quick little thing. So just to piggyback yeah. off of that, um, those statements about um, the educational system today, I think Noam Chomsky even had a small little quote, uh, and it says, education is a system of imposed ignorance. And so I think that definitely relates to that. Um, so yeah, we can go ahead and uh, get to the ninth strategy, which makes me extremely angry, honestly. Uh, this strategy is reinforcing self-blame. So with this strategy, they are making the individual believe that he or she is the culprit of their own misfortune, essentially. And so with this strategy, we believe, 
well, we, we, we learn to doubt our intelligence. We learn to doubt our abilities and our efforts. And this really keeps us stuck in the system because if we are not believing that we're capable of greatness, if we're not believing that we're able to tap into some amazing intelligence that we naturally embody, we're going to be stuck in the system. We're not going to go outside the box. We're not going to, you know, jump outside of our comfort zone. So instead of rebelling against the economic system, first, let's say, the individual will devaluate and blame himself for his own downfalls instead of the way that the system is structured to kind of promote these downfalls. Um, and this leads inevitably to a depressive state within the individual. And there's a purpose to that. And the purpose is to stifle action. And without action, there is no revolution. So we're just kept small. And that's the way they want us to remain. Because again, it all just comes down to like, they don't want to be questioned. They don't, they want people to be stuck and following. They want us to be followers. They want us to follow the herd. Well, I think what everything you said was, was incredibly true, but um, also we have to add, because in capitalism, this, this is something that's obviously just put out there, you know, uh, you, if you, you know, see all these people that are becoming millionaires, if you're not becoming millionaire, it's your fault. Uh, and to a certain extent, I guess that could be understood as true, but they don't, you don't understand that of the system is kind of rigged, right? So as I'm not saying that not, that not anyone can, you know, can, can become a millionaire, you know, with hard work, effort, intelligence, blah, 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 right? This, this is what capitalism sells you, right? And that is true, but we've kind of been taught that the system is fair, that it's not rigged, that it's not, um, uh, there's not an element of love, there's a lot of elements to that, right? Uh, so we have this innate, like this ancient part of our brain that contemplates fairness and justice. And we're willing to participate in, in a game, right? As long as it's fair. But basically what they're, what these people in power are doing, not all of them, but most of them are saying, hey, the system is fair. Uh, it's your own fault. And they're not realizing that, you know, they just rigged the education system against you. They just uh, rigged the political system against you. They rigged everything against you, but it's your fault, right? To a certain extent, I mean, there are obstacles. You can, I guess, get over them, but it's not a fair game. What's thoughts or, or the next one? Yeah, um, I, I agree completely. <laughs> totally. So our last and final strategy, number 10, is for the system to, it, okay, the strategy is that they understand individuals better than they understand themselves, meaning better than the individuals will understand their own, you know, psychological um, processes and their functions of, you know, their brain. Uh, so, you know, comment? Yeah, this, yeah this, this goes back to the fact that they are not stupid people. I mean, in order for someone to maintain power, to stay in power, they need to be very intelligent. Um, and obviously, under, knowing you better than you know yourself, understanding all these strategies and implementing them in, in order to see your motivations, to use them against you, it, it is huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially like during the past 50 years with all these rapid advances in sciences, um, it all has generated such a growing knowledge, especially a knowledge gap between the public and the dominant elites with biology, neurobiology, applied psychology, and the system has enjoyed a sophisticated understanding of human beings that they can really use against us. 
And the system really has gotten a lot better at knowing the common folk than he knows himself. Um, hence their success in controlling the majority of us. Yeah, especially because it's not simple or easy to get an education in all these fields, right? And it's not cheap to hire a specialist in these fields to, to actually you know, be able to enact and, and apply these concepts. So yeah, yes. there's different limits. Okay, uh, so summing this up, you know, we mentioned kind of in, in our mission statement uh, in the beginning of the podcast uh, that you know, our, our goal here is to strengthen and increase the consciousness of our community, right? And who's, who's listening to this or who's part of our lives is, is our community. Uh, so uh, we, we've, we try to do this, but we got to do it in a practical manner, which is also kind of included in our mission statement, right? So I think the big takeaway from this or, or how we can avoid uh, first falling into this is not identifying with groups. And now this is easier said than done because we have a need for community. Now there's a difference between knowing how to interact and move in a community and not identifying yourself as that community. Uh, Ken Wilburn uh, has this thing, this co-concept of uh, growing up, right? And it's this concept of the lowest level is you're just a very selfish individual and you only worry about yourself and your needs. and uh, It's just you, right? And then on the second level, it's, you know, it's your community, your people, your identity. This is, you know, we're, we're Nazis, we're at uh, fascists. They're, they identify themselves with their race or their religion or their creed or their ethnicity, their whatever. Uh, kind of ethnocentric consciousness. And then you go higher and you identify yourself, you know, with all humanity and then kind of with all living things. And then, you know, every, all consciousness in the universe kind of this more um, spiritual sense, but it makes sense in this uh, evolution of consciousness. So, in this next level where you identify with all humanity and so with all living things, if you lose the identity of I am Catholic or I am uh, American or I am whatever, uh, you start first being able, being able to have your own identity and you know, at some point you even lose that, <laughs> which is you know, the whole transcendent spirituality, whatever. But there is, like if you become identified with a group, like I said, it's not just the group being there. Your identity with group does not allow you to think logically. And, and this is horrible because, you know, there's no growth in the room for growth. So definitely like all the listeners out there, what I would recommend as far as applying all this practical knowledge and not being able to be manipulative is not identifying yourself with any specific group, even though there is a need for community and you will never really surpass that we do need to and we need to learn how to function in the community but not identifying yourself uh, as a group i think is the main main point and obviously cultivating yourself learning and applying this critical uh, process i know any comments that you have or, uh, for our listeners as far as how to apply this uh, in their or how to use this in their life to not be manipulated yes so i can definitely share one technique or yeah one little strategy that i've incorporated into my daily life to really um, not identify myself with every belief that is fed to me or every thought or idea, you know, is to just question, like become a reflective being, tap into that introspection that is so valuable to us. And, you know, if you hear something on the news, if you hear someone say something that you don't entirely feel harmonious with or resonance with, ask yourself, like, do I believe this? Like direct your thoughts into just like this reflective pattern, like, 
you know, why, why do I, if, if you do believe this, but you don't feel as though it resonates, ask yourself, why do I believe this? And kind of trace, try, try to trace back to the origin of where that belief came into being. And so that way you can really come to understand it. And also just, yeah, not trust everything or believe everything that you hear. Yeah, there's this concept or this phrase that says strong ideas loosely held. So once, I mean, you need to have a, a idea in order to move through life, right? You need direction in your life. And for that direction to exist in your life, you really do have to, you know, have an idea and believe that. But once you're presented with something else, you know, not be married to that idea so you can progress as a person and maybe change uh, the route or the direction of your life if you realize it's not the best or it's not the most complete uh, and I think that's very critical, you know, not being married to your ideas, being, you know, keeping your mind open uh, because, you know, we can never really get to a higher truth if we just reject everything. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Um, would you like to give our social media? Would you want me to give them uh, so they can reach out to us? Cause we're on Patreon now and, you know, our Facebook uh, is faithful.com forward slash Esoteric Psy, E-N, as in English, because this is the English branch of Esoteric Psy. We have, we're uh, originally started out in Spanish, and we're branching this out. Uh, and our Patreon is also uh, forward slash Esoteric Psy. So if anyone wants to give any donations uh, to keep this project going so we can uh, keep producing more, more videos, uh, that would be awesome as well if you guys can, can donate. Uh, also, do you want to give your own personal media? Yes. So my Instagram, which is the platform that I'm really present on, it is ethereal.creatress. Great. Beautiful. So, um, yeah, I think mine is Alex Aldana, Integral Therapy. I, I'm a therapist, so if anyone's interested. So uh, this was it for Esoteric Sci. Any last comment before we close? Don't think so. Just want to thank you all for being here. And we're so excited for our next episode. Beautiful. So uh, this was Esoteric Sci, right? The website, institution, podcast, where uh, our purpose is to increase the consciousness and fortify our community through starting a dialogue of esoteric wisdom, psychology, and spirituality, practical way that you can apply in your day-to-day -day life. Uh, my name is Dr. Alex Aldana. And my name is Maddie. And we thank you so much for listening to us.